Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Well, let's open God's Word now to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. If you are a visitor, we're, we're delighted that you're here just to let you know a little bit about us as a church, we, we hold the Word of God high in our hearts. We believe that it is inerrant and infallible, that God has preserved His Word for us so that we can not only know about Him, know about ourselves, but also know His will for His people. And we study the Bible verse by verse through books, and, and we are, we've been studying through the book of 1 Timothy, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who's the pastor of the church in Ephesus, and we've made our way to chapter 5, and, and generally in Paul's letters, the, the front half of the letter is, is loaded with theology, and, and then toward the latter half of the letters, it's, it's more focused on practical things for the church to know, and we've entered into that practical section. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Paul's instruction about how the church can care for the needy among us, particularly those widows among us, and now the focus shifts from caring for widows, to caring for the elders in the church, the leaders of the church. So if you've had time to find your way to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17, just follow along as I read the text and we'll pray and study it together. Paul tells Timothy to let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. But the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is God's Word. Would you pray with me before we study it? Father, we thank you for this time of worship. We thank you for the songs that we sing and the truths that we are able to not only declare and proclaim to you, but also the truths that get lodged in our hearts and in our minds. We thank you for music and the beauty of it. And your intention is for us as your people to sing these songs of truth so that those truths can get lodged in our hearts. And so would you allow that to happen this morning and let us know that all our boast is in Jesus and all our hope is in his love because in his love he came and he lived and he died to set us free from the guilt of our sin to reconcile us to you and to reconcile us to one another. And now as your people, we seek to live faithfully according to your word. And so as we study this text, help us to 
understand how to apply it. Help us to be diligent and faithful to what you have revealed. Accomplish your purpose in us today and for us as a church in equipping us to know how to care for the leaders you've placed in our lives. Lord, we love you and thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When we look at the landscape of leadership within our culture, I don't know how you feel, but it has become very easy for me to be quite discouraged by what I see. Scandals abound, and our nation's most prominent leaders find themselves right at the center of those scandals. We have a leader in the highest office in the land, and with each passing day, he proves himself unfit to hold that office. It's discouraging. There are terrible ideas, there are ungodly ideas that have taken root in our society, and many of our leaders have made it their aim to see that those ideas get even more deeply rooted in our culture. It's discouraging. We, we face problems around every corner, and decisions are being made by those in leadership, and oftentimes those decisions seem to be more inclined toward their personal self-interest than to the interest of the American people in our way of life. It's discouraging. John MacArthur pointed out that the standard for worldly leadership is to accomplish the leader's desire through the people. That seems very true today. But in the church, the aim of godly leadership is to see the Lord's desires fulfilled in the lives of His people. And elders... Pastors, shepherds are called to lead in those desires, the Lord's desires. Elders in the church have a high calling to shepherd the people of God, to follow the will of God as it's revealed in the Word of God, rather than to just follow the whims of that leader's personal self-interest. But as we take those ideas, whether you fully agree with him or not, you take those ideas and you focus in on what's going on in the church at Ephesus that Paul is writing to Timothy about, it seems as though the leaders in Ephesus have forgotten their calling. Things have shifted. False teaching has become prominent. And, and I don't know if you know this about the church in Ephesus, but this is one of the rare situations in the New Testament where we get to see kind of the birth of the church. We get to see multiple letters directed at this church. And then we see in the Revelation that Jesus refers to this church as those who've lost their first love. It's almost like we're seeing the end of that church. And all along the way, we know from Scripture that this church had an incredible lineup of leaders that were guiding them. If you go back in the book of Acts, you'll find that, um, that the, a man named Apollos a man that Paul mentions, not only in the book of Acts as he mentioned by Luke, but he's mentioned by Paul in 1 Corinthians as, a, as an individual who was a powerful preacher. He's introduced to us uh, in Acts, I think it's 18, and, and he is known as this eloquent speaker, and his ministry started in Ephesus. The church at Ephesus had this powerful preacher of the Word of God. And then we have this, these other two people that we know by name, Priscilla and Aquila. They were in Ephesus as well, and they took Apollos aside and helped him to understand the things of God more accurately as it related to Christ. And, and then later on, the Apostle Paul came to Ephesus. And he didn't just make a little stop and, and stir up a chaos and then leave. He spent two years in Ephesus. The Apostle Paul himself, two years 
uh, guiding the church, teaching the church, instructing the church, and ordering the church. And then when Paul left, he sent Timothy to them. And then Timothy is spending his time in this church. And then later on, later in the first century, we know that the apostle John comes to the city of Ephesus and his letters are written to that church, if you read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So, I mean, just think about the lineup of the notable leaders in this particular church. They had Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila and Paul and Timothy and then John. I mean, some of the most notable names in the whole New Testament were there ministering and guiding and directing this church, but that wasn't enough to keep the local leadership in the church at Ephesus from falling into heresy. Let's just pause and think about that for a second. Timothy, as the leader of this church, the preacher and pastor of this church, he has his hands full, correcting false doctrine, putting the church into order, and then giving instructions on how the members are to relate to one another. And a big part of his task was to help sort out the mess within the eldership of the church. Now back in chapter 3, we've already studied the qualifications for an elder, the responsibility and qualifications. And those qualifications in chapter 3 focused very heavily on character. Not so much on their technical expertise, but on their character. But this passage focuses in on a few other things. It focuses in on the church's care for their elders. And it also focuses in on how the church should discipline its elders. And then how the Elders are to be appointed or not appointed in this particular case. And then finally, how the elders should take care of themselves. So all of this instruction relates to the church and their relationship to the elders and leaders among them. And let's start, go back to verse 17, and we'll start with the care of elders or the honor that is due to elders. Verse 17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Now, I've been called a lot of things in my life. I have never been called an ox. This is an interesting phrase. It's actually an Old Testament passage, and you can see it in the quotations in your Bible and maybe in the footnote. The quote comes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 4. And it's in that verse that Moses is using an illustration that would have been common to the people of that day. The illustration comes from the threshing floor. And I don't know how many of you have spent time on a threshing floor, but I'll give you a little bit of a, 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 just a, a reminder of what that might look like. So as grain is harvested, it's bundled up, and then it's taken to the threshing floor. And so you've got a stalk and you've got the, the fruit at the top of that grain and, and there's all the chaff that's involved in that. And so those stalks were taken to the threshing floor and then oxen were used to walk across that grain. And, and just by virtue of that walking and their weight on the grain, it would separate the, the heads of grain, the actual fruit, the seeds from the, the inedible chaff. And then those things would be winnowed and you could separate the, the seed from the chaff and, and on and on it goes. And, and the story as you see it here is the idea that as those oxen are doing their work, as they are walking across the grain, helping to assist in separating the grain from the chaff, they have the opportunity to reach down and eat some of the grain that they have produced. So long as they weren't wearing a muzzle. 
The point was to ensure that the animals doing the work were allowed to eat some of the food that they had worked to process. It helped them to stay strong and healthy. It helped them at some level to enjoy their work because they were able to benefit from their labor. And this was a principle that was so important to God that he deemed it to be a law for his people to follow. And and the law doesn't just apply to the oxen. The, The law applies to the leaders of God's people, those who were called to shepherd God's people. As as those individuals, leaders and elders and pastors and teachers, as they, they make effort to guide the people of God, to nourish the people of God, to feed the people of God, they should have the ability to take advantage of the things that they were able to contribute to. In Luke chapter 10, as Jesus was preparing his disciples to go out and preach, if you can kind of get your mind around what's been going on, and in and, and Luke, Jesus... He identifies himself and his ministry. He begins to call a group of men around him. He's teaching them. He's training them. He performs miracles. And then at one particular point, he gathers them all up. There's this weird idea. He breathes on them. And the the concept is him breathing the Spirit of God onto them. And then he sends them out to go and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he gives them some instruction. He tells them, you're going out into a harvest. And he says, when you go, don't take any money with you. Don't take an extra cloak with you. Just go and speak the truth. And when you speak the truth and and the people hear it, those people who receive the truth, let them receive you into their homes and show you hospitality. And then Jesus says this, remain in their house and eat and drink whatever they provide because the laborer deserves his wage. So what Paul's doing in this passage is he's, he's quoting an Old Testament passage all the way back in Deuteronomy, and then he's quoting Jesus himself, what Jesus had to say about the, the people who benefit from the preaching of the Word supporting those men who preach the Word. Paul is quoting both of those to emphasize that the elders' hard work deserves to be rewarded by the people who benefit from their leadership. But he does put some qualifications on it. Look at what he says. He says, let those elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. And the word rule there means to direct the affairs of the church. They are overseers, providing oversight and direction for the church. That's what elders are called to do. And for an elder to rule well means that they lead the church faithfully. They do it according to the word of God. And this was especially important because... There were elders in the church at Ephesus who were not leading according to the Word of God. Back in chapter 3, a few weeks ago, maybe a few months ago now, we learned that elders, shepherds, or pastors, all of those words are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They have the responsibility of providing leadership and oversight to the church. Faithful elders care for the flock. They feed the flock by preaching and teaching in order that God's people may know God's word and live faithfully in light of its truth. Elders are charged by God to teach sound doctrine and to confront those who do not teach sound doctrine and lead others astray. And the church in Ephesus had a host of elders who were doing that very thing. And so when Paul tells Timothy to honor those elders who rule well, he's talking about those elders who have remained faithful. They have remained faithful to preaching the truth. They have remained faithful to their calling. They are providing biblical leadership over the people of God. And because of this, they should be honored 
And we looked at this word honor a couple of weeks ago as we were looking at how to honor widows. And, it, and here he uses the phrase double honor. And, and the, the term is, well, honestly, it's used of wages that would be given to uh, a physician back in the day. And that, that's being translated to ministry here. The, the word honor is not just talking about showing respect to elders, but providing financial support for the elder. So you could think of it in this way. It, it is to honor and provide an honorarium, to use a common term, or to show respect and financial support. Paul takes it for granted throughout the New Testament, as well as Jesus, that the pastorate is a paid ministry. And he draws this fact from the Old Testament and the teaching of the Lord. He says this, this is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 11. He says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So this is a principle of the New Testament. It's a principle of the Old Testament that those who serve the people of God should be supported by the people of God. But that doesn't always happen. The churches aren't always eager to be faithful and generous in their financial support for their pastors. I've experienced this in my lifetime. Some of you may have as well. I read a quote uh, from Charles Spurgeon's autobiography. He, he wrote about a small country church that asked him to recommend a pastor for them. It's Spurgeon had his pastor's college, and so he was constantly training men, and churches from all over the, the area would write into him and say, do you have a, a young man who's equipped and ready to shepherd this flock? And, and this church not only re- reached out to Spurgeon asking for a pastor, but they also shared with Spurgeon the salary that they were prepared to pay. And the salary was so small that Spurgeon wrote this in reply. He says, The only individual I know who could exist on such a stipend is the angel Gabriel. He would need neither cash nor clothes, and he could come down from heaven every Sunday morning and go back at night, so I advise you to invite him. Look, I want you to know, just this past week, I celebrated my 14th year here at Cornerstone as your pastor. And you have not only been financially generous to me and to my family, but you've also been generous to others who serve here at Cornerstone. Throughout my time here, you have prioritized caring for my needs and the needs of our staff. And some of you have helped our family in ways that go well beyond a salary. And when you've done these things, you've shown not only that you love us, but that you love the gospel and you're willing to offer financial support to those who preach it. So I commend you and I thank you. But there's a principle here that we need not lose sight of. A church that loves the gospel and benefits from its teaching will share in supporting those who preach and teach it. That's the biblical principle. But it comes with another side. At the same time, a church that values the ministry of the Word of God will also take seriously any deviation from its truth. And that's what Paul brings up in the next verse. So let's look back at the text. Look at the discipline of elders in verse 19. He says, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And as for those those elders who persist in sin, 
rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. And then he gives him this charge, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you, keep these rules without prejudging, do nothing from partiality. So the context is is helpful here. Remember that Timothy is dealing with elders who were teaching false doctrine and also dealing with elders, most likely, who were looking down on him because of his youth. That was one of the things that Paul has already mentioned in this letter. Don't let them look down on you for your youth, but set an example, right? And so that's Timothy's situation. Now, being a young man under the authority of the Apostle Paul and the Word of God, you might be able to see how Timothy, in such a situation, could be eager to call these men out, could be eager to put them in their place, could be eager to dismiss them from their positions. But sometimes, emotional responses to such problems can cause a leader to go too far. In his zeal to set things right, Timothy might become overzealous. And Paul wants him to avoid such a response. So he gives him these instructions on how to address elders in the church, and he urges Timothy, proceed with caution. Right? Don't be so eager to do this. Make sure that you do this appropriately. He is not to prejudge, which means that, that we're not to make judgments without evidence. It's not outside the question, even in your experience, for individuals to come and to say something about a leader in the church, and you're shaking your head thinking, where's your evidence for that? We're not to judge without evidence. And then he says, don't, don't be partial, remain impartial, which means you don't side with the people you like and attack the people you don't. You're to remain unbiased and judge a matter based on evidence so that you don't slander someone who is actually serving Christ faithfully. I saw another quote this week in my preparation. It's from John Calvin, and he said this, none are more exposed to slanders and insults than godly teachers. Those who preach the gospel remain in the crosshairs of those who hate the gospel. And the enemies of the church will do everything they can to ruin a pastor's credibility, even if that means lying to sway the jury. We saw that in Jesus' life, right? Jesus was falsely accused on the night of his betrayal. We saw that in Paul's life. Paul was falsely accused in Jerusalem by people who were determined to silence him. And maybe in your own life, you have seen faithful pastors whose ministries have been undermined by vindictive preferences of a small group of people within a congregation. And so Paul tells Timothy, don't accept a charge against an elder unless there is good evidence to support that it's true. But what about when an elder has been charged with unfaithfulness, right? Paul says we should do everything we can to determine the truth about those claims made against them. And and he quotes another passage from Deuteronomy 19. This idea of there being more than one witnesses, two or three witnesses. It comes from Deuteronomy 19.15 that says, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So so Paul's got his mind in Deuteronomy here. And he's saying, take the wisdom of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and apply it so that you can be just in determining what's going on in these situations. And the the same instruction applies when it comes to elders being accused. 
This means that we don't dismiss an elder on account of gossip or someone's personal vendetta. Every charge must be supported by several witnesses, and the aim is to ensure that faithful men are not dismissed or rebuked on false charges, and it also ensures that unfaithful men will be properly held accountable. When a charge is established, the evidence is clear. The sin must be addressed in an appropriate manner. Well, here's the question. What is an appropriate manner? Sin has occurred, and it's going to be addressed. Do we have any instruction in the Scriptures on how to address individuals who have sinned against us? Well, absolutely we do. The Lord Jesus gives us very clear instruction on what to do when another Christian has sinned against us. In Matthew 18, He, he lays out a, a plan, a, a, a progression of interaction. It starts with us seeking that person out, telling them their faults, seeking reconciliation. If they refuse to acknowledge their sin in repentance, then we move forward with another witness. And we repeat the process. And if that doesn't elicit repentance, then it becomes a matter for the church. That's Matthew 18, 15 through 20. And I will say this. I think it is appropriate to address private or personal sins in a private or personal way. And that would include the elders of the church. I believe that it is also appropriate for those who preach and teach to be held accountable for what they say to the church. So what does that look like? Well, In some cases, a church member may hear something. You may hear something from the pulpit or a Sunday school class that you have never heard before. Maybe you disagree with it, or maybe it's just something that concerns you. And I believe it is absolutely appropriate for you to seek out that teacher, to engage that teacher and discuss your thoughts, to ask your questions, so long as you do so with humility and respect. And when you do that, It's not the same thing as bringing a charge against an elder. I've been preaching for a a long time. And there have been many occasions where I've walked down off of this platform and we sing our final song and we have our benediction and we dismiss and someone comes up to me with a question. Pastor, you said this. I've always heard that. Or, Pastor, you said this and I'm not sure I agree with that. Or, Pastor, I think you're wrong about this and here's my evidence. Here's what I think... That's, that's perfectly fine. Now, I think you should do that in the appropriate time and the appropriate way and with the appropriate attitude. But listen, we are not as elders above uh, you know, uh, questioning. Come, ask your questions. Let's do that work. That's, the Scripture talks about iron sharpening iron as one man sharpens another. So if, if you have questions, come. We're not afraid of questions. If I can't defend my position, well, that's on me but maybe you will learn something, maybe I will learn something. But that's not the same thing as bringing a charge against an elder. When a teacher is promoting false doctrine blatantly, when a preacher is preaching something that is contrary to the revealed Word of God, that's when the situation becomes far more serious. This type of error calls for more direct action. Because the falsehood was presented to the entire church, Paul says the response should address the error before the entire church. Paul's not instructing Timothy to rebuke everyone that he disagrees with, but to address in public those sins of leadership that will lead God's people astray. When things get to this level, it is uncomfortable. And look, I'm the one who speaks here more than anyone else. But listen, the truth is, is at stake, and it is very important that we demand the truth be proclaimed. 
In Galatians, Paul found himself in this very position. You may remember this story. It's, it's an odd one. It's, it's uncomfortable even to read it. But what had happened is that Peter had made his way to Galatia. And in the course of events, another group of people came into Galatia. And Peter had something of a fear of man syndrome. And these individuals came and Peter removed himself from the Gentiles. He, he stopped eating with them out of fear of the Jews. And the scripture says that Paul walked up to him, got in his face in front of everyone and rebuked him for his hypocrisy. He told him that he was abandoning and not living in step with the gospel. The gospel was at stake. That's when things get serious. Peter said, you're sh- uh, Paul said to Peter, you're showing favoritism. You're undermining a core principle of the gospel. Jesus has broken down the dividing wall of hostility that exists between the various peoples of the world. And Paul said, that is such an egregious error that it needs to be confronted publicly. You see, in Christ, the, the prejudices and the preferences that corrupt our fellowship with other people, that's done away with. How is it done away with? Because all of those little cultural peculiarities that we share when we come to Christ, we all find ourselves in the same position, on our knees seeking forgiveness because we're all sinners deserving God's wrath. And it's only in Christ that we find our hope and our confidence. And and Peter was just ignoring that. He had forgotten all about that. All of us come to Christ with empty hands, No one's better than another. We're all on the same playing field. We come to God for forgiveness in Christ and we're reconciled to God by faith in Christ and we are reconciled to others by our common faith in Christ. Regardless of our different cultural peculiarities or our nationalities, our unity as a people of God is established on the basis of what Christ has done for us. And that's what Paul was confronting Peter about. There was a gospel issue at stake and he did it publicly And he did it face to face. He didn't do it on Facebook. He did it face to face, respectfully, man to man. So when an elder blatantly preaches heresy and false doctrine from the pulpit, the church has a responsibility to address it in a public way. But before any step is taken, the charges must be established by multiple witnesses. As the scripture says, not every error in leadership is the result of some sinister plot of the elders. Right? Sometimes it's just the result of ignorance or sometimes it's the result of carelessness or sometimes it's the result of a different opinion. But some, some opportunities, some of those m- moments are in fact blatant attacks on the truth. And as a church, we need to commend those who preach the gospel faithfully And we need to hold accountable those who abandon the truth. And that was Paul's instruction to Timothy. It's his instruction for us as well. But he also says something else in the next verse that helps me to understand there's a connection between these two things. Because the stakes are so high with elders who preach and teach, we need to be very careful when we appoint elders in the first place. And that's what he says in verse 22. Take care when appointing elders. He says, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. 
Now, the laying on of hands is a symbolic act. It's a a signal of the installation of a leader into an office of ministry. And Paul says, don't take this lightly. And, And let's get back in the context for a second. I mean, Think about what Timothy is. He's got all of these problems. Paul's not with him. He doesn't know if he's going to see Paul again. He's a young man in ministry. He's already got people who look down on him for his youth. I mean, he may be very eager to get a group of guys around him that agree with him, that understand the responsibilities. And he's like, come on, we can do this together. Lay hands on them, make them elders, and let's go forward. And Paul says, no, don't, don't, don't be too eager to do that. Slow down and make sure that the men that you are appointing to be elders are truly faithful and godly men. That's why he's given us that list of character qualities in chapter 3. John MacArthur reminds us that as he speaks on this particular passage, he says there's a good and vital reason that Paul said lay hands suddenly on no man. The biblical qualifications for elders are all characteristics of godliness and giftedness that must be proven over time. A man may instinctively know how to make a good first impression. He superficially appears to be keen-thinking, knowledgeable, mature, or supremely gifted as a teacher, but he could actually have serious character flaws that would disqualify him from the eldership, and those sometimes become plainly evident only through long-term patterns of behavior. Therefore, it is vital that the church leaders first be proved and then let them use the office. That's from 1 Timothy 3, verse 10. So men seeking the position of an elder should be thoroughly examined in their doctrine and their character and their gifting. And only after this takes place should they be presented to the church. All right, lastly, Paul gives some instruction on Timothy taking care of his health. Look at verse 23. He says, No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now this is a personal letter from Paul to Timothy. He calls him his son in the faith. There's obviously a deep relationship of love and respect between the two of these men, and Paul has shown concern throughout this letter for Timothy's spiritual well-being, his emotional well-being, and now his physical well-being. And this this instruction, in my mind, it kind of takes on the tone of a fatherly concern. Hey, make sure you're taking care of yourself. I have some brothers in this congregation that do that for me. They ask me those questions. Hey, how are you doing? Aside from ministry and aside from, how are you doing physically? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you eating right? Are you sleeping right? Are you going to the gym? Are you doing the right things? Because it is, whether you know this or not, ministry is one of these positions that it's easy to burn yourself out in caring for others. So Paul says, hey, take care of yourself. Ministry leadership is a high calling. It comes with great blessings, but it takes a toll on a man's body and his mind and his heart. So many pastors just focus more on their church and more than they do their spiritual health. And we need to be reminded to take care of ourselves. Physical health is a critical part of a long and faithful ministry. And pastors need to take care of their bodies. And one of the things that you have done as a congregation to ensure that I can do that is I I get to take a sabbatical every three years. And we talked about that. I remember being in conversation with the elders and deacons when I was candidating for this position, and I had come through a long season of very difficult ministry, and I was exhausted. And I remember talking to the elders about that, and I said, could you consider a, a, a reasonable sabbatical over a period of time? And they came back and said, yes, here's what we'll do for you. So every three years, I get a month off just to rest just to renew my spirit in the Lord, to spend time with my family, 
and to come back into ministry renewed, rested, and excited and ready to continue. And I know that that has been instrumental in the last 14 years of ministry here. So we need to take care of our pastors in more than just financial support. There are other ways to do that as well. By the way, Paul says to Timothy, drink a little wine. And that wine has medicinal purposes. And contrary to the opinions of some, he was not encouraging Timothy to sin in doing this. Timothy needed to care for his body, and the wine provided some of, the, some of the help that he needed for the common illnesses of the day. And then the last thing that Paul says here, and I think it goes back to what he's just been saying about these elders and our need to take care and slow down and be patient in looking at these men. He says, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. It's, it's hard to know a man right off the bat. Some people can make a good first impression. We need to be patient before we put our hands on leaders. So also good works are sometimes conspicuous. Those faithful but quiet men who like to be in the background and, are, or, and women who are serving faithfully, sometimes you don't see all that, but over time, those things cannot remain hidden. Their good works will show themselves. Some people are good at hiding what they don't want others to see. But sins will find us out, whether in this life or in the next. And over time, those things that were hidden at first, can become obvious. And this leads us to be patient when it comes to leadership. This is even more true with the desire to appoint elders who bear the large burden of ministry. So in Timothy's case, like I said, he's probably eager to have men at his side. He's probably eager to have some guys sharing the burden of ministry. He's he's eager to put them into positions where they can help him to put the church into order, but that eagerness should not lead him to be hasty. Timothy needs to be patient and discerning, and we should follow the same advice as a church. We need to look below the surface of people's lives as much as we can, be as discerning as we can before we lay a mantle of responsibility on someone's shoulders. This is Paul's instruction on how we are to care for the elders in our church. So what do we do with all this information? Some of it's just practically helpful, and I'll leave it at that, but there are some things that I think we need to take away from it. The first is this. The church has a responsibility to care for its elders. I'll just say it this way, to care for its leaders. When elders serve faithfully and lead well and they prove themselves worthy of honor and financial support, the church should provide that. Cornerstone, you have been a source of joy for me and my family these last 14 years. You have shown me love and respect. You have supported me through deep sorrow and deep grief. And you have encouraged me and helped me. And you have been financially generous to me and my family, and not just me, but to the others who serve here as well. I commend you for this. You have prioritized care for your leaders, and I pray that your commitment to do this would continue to abound. Number two, the proper discipline of leaders is a serious matter and one that the church should not take lightly. We don't know who said it first, but there's a quote that is as true today as when it was first spoken. The best of men are but men at best. The best of men are but men at best. We're all flawed and sinful people, and your leaders are no exception. We seek to be faithful, we want to be godly, we want to grow, we want to mature, we want to be helpful, but we're men at best. We don't know all things, we do not possess all wisdom, we have not yet been freed from the full corruption of sin, we are mere men. And this calls for knowledge and understanding and humility. 
on our part. But church leaders are not above scrutiny. The Lord has given us clear instruction on how to carry out discipline when a leader fails. And it's for the purpose of the church, it's for the purpose of the purity of the gospel and the word of God that we should take such action. So as a church, we can't let prejudice get in the way of proper discipline because too much is at stake. But we should demand truth to be proclaimed and truth to be guiding our leadership at every level. Lastly, we all need to remember the role that elders play in the life of the church. Our task is to lead, our task is to teach, our task is to pray, our task is to serve so that the body of Christ will be directed by God's will and not our own. I'm reminded of a story about a man who came to visit a church one Sunday morning. And he met the pastor and he said to the pastor, so, so you're the pastor of this church and that must mean that you think you are the guy with all the answers. And the pastor looked at him and said, well, I am the pastor, but I'm not the guy with all the answers. My job is to point you to the guy who does have all the answers. His name is Jesus. You see, that's our role. We're not the guys who are going to fix everything. We're not the guys who are going to know everything. We're the guys who point you to the one who does know and can fix all of our problems. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. And as challenging as it is to hear some of these things or to preach some of these things as one of the pastors in this church, Lord, I thank you that you have given us this instruction. You've not left us um, ignorant over how to care for the leaders among us, how to discipline the leaders among us, how to uh, appoint leaders and how to instruct leaders in caring for themselves. Lord, help us as a church to be faithful in these tasks. And I pray for our leadership, myself and our other elders and our deacons and those who teach and those who counsel and those who lead in home groups and all of the things that are happening. Lord, help us to be faithful men and women. Help us to, to see the importance of our own devotion to you and to your word and to see that our ministry is it's the overflow of our delight in you. It's the overflow of our seeking your word and the truth of it out. Lord, help us as leaders to be faithful. Hold us accountable by your spirit and your word and by faithful brothers and sisters around us. And as a church, Lord, I pray that we would have this, this high and sincere degree of importance placed on the preaching of the word so that we can honor those who do it, but also spot when they deviate from it. Lord, keep us faithful. Make this pulpit faithful for years and generations to come, long beyond me and anyone else. Lord, I pray that you would establish in us a faithful desire to proclaim your truth no matter the cost. And we give that to you. We love you and thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.